<clears throat> Before uh, Christmas came, we were going through the book of First Thessalonians. And we took a break for the holidays through Christmas and for the Advent season. And so now we're going to jump back into the study. And uh, so just to kind of put in context of where we are, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And in, in the Bible, we have lots of places where there's kind of a description of, or like a heading in our Bible. And these headings aren't in the original text, they aren't in the original Bible, but people have put it in there to try to be helpful to figure out where we are and what we're going through. And so if we look in the ESV, the uh, section that, that is 1 through 12 says how to live a life pleasing to God. And so the last message that we heard Toby had preached to us before uh, Christmas, and that was verses 1 through 8, and one of the ways that we live a life pleasing to God is to live lives of purity. And so now we're going to go on and we're going to jump back in from there. We're going to look at how else do we live a life pleasing to God. And this is one of these um, sermons that's real like practical in nature. And it's going to kind of like walk through the things that we're going to do. So to kind of get started, I want to ask some questions. And these are very, very pointed questions. Design you to kind of reflect and to think about your life and who you are and how you live it. So what is your life like? Is it fairly quiet? and an uneventful life, where you go to work, you do your job, you pay your bills, you mind your own affairs? Or is it one where it's loud, disruptive? Do you find yourself always needing to know what other people are doing? Are you accused of sticking your nose into business that's not your own and is someone else's? Um, what is your work like? Do you work hard? Do you get good reviews? Or are you sloppy at work? spending more time talking than you are actually working? Or do you work at all? Do you have a job? I'm not talking about those people who um, cannot work or those who are dedicated homemakers, but if you should have a job and you should be supporting yourself and you should be supporting your family, do you have a job? What do other people think about you? What do they think about you at work? What do they think about you at home? What do believers think about you? What do non-believers think about you? And do you think these questions are important at all? God thinks so. And God has given us this passage today designed for us to look at these questions and to answer these questions and to see how it is that we live a life that's pleasing to God in a couple of different areas. So, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12. Once again, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12. It says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love. In the New Testament, we find Jesus Christ saying the same thing. He says, a new commandment I gave you, even though it's not a new commandment. Maybe, maybe that was Paul who said that, actually. <laughs> but anyway, we know that Jesus said this, and we know that Paul said this. But we know that Jesus did command us to love one another. He commanded us to love um, not only one another, but even, even our enemies. He commanded us to love our enemies as well. Jesus Christ has taught us to love. But it seems like the Apostle Paul is saying something more than that. Because he's saying, you are taught by God himself. And what the Apostle Paul is getting at is that it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit in dwelling with our hearts 
that is, teaches us how to love God. The, promise, the prophets had promised that in this messianic age, all of God's people, all of God's people would receive his spirit. They would be taught by the Lord, and they would know him. And Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, says this has happened. This promise has been fulfilled. And so, to quote one commentator, he says this. He says, some instructions for Christians come through their brethren in Christ. But other lessons are taught by God to his children directly. Things that almost intuitively seem right for a Christian to do. And loving other Christians is such a lesson. So this is how it is for you if you are a believer. It is the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. This Holy Spirit is a spirit of love. And you understand instinctively that we are to love one another. And that we do love one another. And... It's not only you that understands this, but the world itself expects it, doesn't it? So when the, if you say you're a Christian, the world expects you to act in a loving way. And if you don't, you can find them accusing. I thought you were a Christian, you're acting like that, right? And so the world understands this as well. We are to love one another because God is love. And he abides in us. And we abide in him. So, if God himself teaches us to love, why is Paul telling us to love one another? And why is Paul telling us to love one another more and more? And so to, I'm going to combine the words of two commentators because I think they do this so well. Um, one says, the nature of Christian love is such that it is always practiced and it is never mastered. So Paul issues a call to growth. We are to please God more and more, and we are to love one another more and more. In this life, we never finally arrive. We only press on towards the goal. Our justification is deed once for all, but our sanctification is always more and more. We are justified once, but our sanctification is always more and more. And if you think about it, to live this Christian life, if God is love and God abides in us through his Holy Spirit, we will love. It is what we do. As long as we are here, it isn't a thing that we loved once, and that was it. It was like the old story that says, you know, the old guy who'd been married for like, you know, 50 years, never once told his wife, you know, he loved her. And someone said that, he's like, he's like well, the day we got married, I said, I love you. And if it ever changes, I'll let her know. <laughs> right? But old quoting joke, I know. <laughs> but still, the point is, you don't just tell your life once. You don't just tell your wife once, I love you, right? But it's an ongoing thing because it's what you do. If you're married and you love your wife, you simply do that. As Christians, God has taught us to love. And we love. It's, it's what we do. It's who we are. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, do this more and more and more because it's who you are. But loving other people isn't always easy, is it? And it seems like there's always someone who you struggle with to love. And even Jesus Christ says, you know, love, you know, the people who love you, but also love your enemies. So it's this love. And so just a couple of questions. Is it easy or hard for you to love, right? Some of us seems to become more natural because of our personality. We're just kind of, you know, um, introvert, extrovert, extroverts, right? And we just kind of act that way. And we're, you know what I mean? We're just that way. But others are introverts. It's harder. Um, other things that might be how we're brought up. Different things factor in. Then there's also kind of people who rub us the wrong way, people who we have a difficult time with, people who we just, you know, have a hard time. And the Apostle Paul, and God through the Apostle Paul, was saying, love more and more. 
So who do you struggle with when it comes to loving others? Are they the people who are most like you or the people who are the most different? And are there specific people? Where do you need the help? Or where do you need other people to pray for you so that you can do it? Where do you need the Holy Spirit and His help the most? Think about those situations. Think about those people. And reach out to God. And reach out to each other. And ask each other to pray because we are to do this together in love with each other. And so we pray and we ask other people to pray for us in these areas. Paul goes on from there, right? Because there's three things he talks about. He talks about loving more and more. He talks about leading these peaceful, quiet lives. And then he talks about work. So let's look at the, the um, part that says live quiet lives and mind your own affairs, right? Paul goes on, he says, aspire to live quiet lives and mind your own affairs. What does he mean by this? I think he means to aspire to live quiet lives and to mind your own affairs. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of mystery here, right here, right? I think it's what he's talking about. Because let's think about what's the opposite of leading a quiet life? What's the opposite of minding our affairs? What does that actually look like? And so what does the world tell us to do? What does the media tell us to do? TV tell us to do? The, the, you know, the musicians, the artists, the athletes, what do they tell us to do? To live big, right? To live fast, to live for glory, to live for recognition, to be so popular that you break the internet. To make a statement, to drop the mic, right? That's what the world around us is telling us. And what does our inside tell us? What does our hearts tell us? What do our minds tell us? What do our emotions tell us, right? I need to be right. I need to set the record straight. I need to put these people into their place because they are wrong and I am right. Or these people are ignoring me. They need to hear what I think. They need to hear about this. They need to hear my opinion about this and about that and just about everything else. As I worked the other day and a couple of people were having a conversation and we were so, uh, my daytime job is an air traffic controller and so I work in a radar room, there's different radars and so there's people around and they're just kind of talking, it was a slow time of the day and everyone kind of like goes in and out of the conversation depending on how busy they are. And so these people are talking and they're going back and forth and so there's always one guy, right, who chimes in, who always jumps in. So sure enough, this guy jumps in, he starts chiming in, he starts getting everybody riled up. And one of the other guys says, mind your own beeswax, <laughs> mind your own beeswax. So, did you ever hear that as a kid growing up? Did your mom ever tell you that? Well, it turns out she was right. <laughs> so, right? But see, the world understands this. Your mom understands this. And you need to understand this as well. So, the question becomes, is Paul saying that we never say anything? That to mind your own business means that we never say anything to anybody at any time? The answer is no. Because he tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. In Galatians 6, 1, 8, he says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we're called to speak the truth. We're called to restore people who are caught in sin. But we are to do it lovingly and gently. So here, Paul clearly is saying something different than that. What is he saying? Verse from 2 Thessalonians and a verse from 1 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians, I have no idea what chapter it was because I didn't put it, but it is verse 11. Um, he says this. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not, at busy, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 1 Timothy 5.13. 
Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Right, so do you understand what he's saying? He's not saying we're helping people, we're getting involved out of love, but we're just busybodies, we're idlers, we're gossipers, we're getting in there. And he's saying don't do that. Don't do that. Why do we do that, or why do we aspire to lead these quiet lives? First of all, it's one of the ways that we love each other. It is one of the ways that we love each other, to be these quiet lives, to aspire that way. When we do speak to someone, we're speaking out of gentleness, we're speaking out of love. We're not the gossip, the busy bodies, the idlers, the ones who are going out about that. Because think how that would affect your relationship. Think about the ones who are loud and obnoxious and always butting into business and always overstepping bounds versus the ones who are quiet and who are peaceful and who are trying to build up these relationships. The thing about the ones who, um, you know, who aren't the quiet lives and, and you know, doing that, it's all about them, it's all about them, it's all about them. Paul's saying, no, don't do that. We love each other, and this is one of the ways that we love each other. So that's how it affects relationships. It also affects relationships in the church as well. Another reason that Paul says that we do this is so that we may live properly before outsiders. We may live properly before outsiders, meaning unbelievers, meaning non-Christians. So if we're loud and we're obnoxious and we're always interfering, what do other people think? Will God be glorified? Will they see the love of Jesus? Will they want to be a Christian just like you? And also, I also think that Paul is talking not only about the outside and what people see, and what we do in front of other people, but also the inside. What's inside of us? What are our lives like on the inside? Listen to 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 5. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden, be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So God is talking about the outside, and he's talking about the inside. This is where that internal beauty is. It's that gentle and that quiet spirit. And in God's sight, in God's sight, it is precious. God wants us to live quietly on the inside, in our hearts. And he wants to do this before him, and he wants us to do before other people. So, this may or may not be easy for you, right? Depending on what your personality is, depending on, you know, um, depending on, you know, your natural disposition. Where do you struggle with this? Where do you need help? Where do you need the Holy Spirit in this area? Where do you need the prayers of other people in this area? And once again, I encourage you to reach out and talk to the people around you and say, you know, this piece, you know, it's like the Apostle Paul in this passage talked about, you know, those three things. Um, and I have a difficult time with this one, with leading the quiet lines, whether it's outside or whether it's inside. And can you just pray for me just in this area? And I just encourage you to do that. So the Apostle Paul goes on, and the next thing he wants to talk about is working with your own hands. And so, um, we just want to spend a few minutes looking at this. We're going to spend a little bit longer 
looking at the work part than we did the other pieces. The reason being is I want to split it up into two different pieces. Number one is Paul's saying, work with your hands so you're not dependent on anybody else. So I want to look at, do you work, do you have a job, and what the Apostle Paul is actually getting at. Because that's what he's talking about, people who should be getting a job and supporting their family, and they're not doing it. The other thing I want to look at is, um, how are you at work, and how do you work itself when you're there? And especially when we talk about this piece about you know, how you work at there, um, we're going to kind of talk about whether you don't work or whether you're um, that. And so we can kind of include that piece. But first of all, look at, let's look at this, right? So Paul tells them to work. Why is he telling them to work? Because some of them aren't working. You don't tell someone to do something that they're already doing, right? And especially if you look at the passage of this context, because what does he say about brotherly love? He said, you don't need me to tell you anything about brotherly love because, number one, God taught you. Number two, you're already doing it. You're doing it all through Macedonia. So when he comes to work, he's telling them because they aren't doing what God has called them to do. And so Paul, bring this up, Paul brings this up in this letter. He tells them to work. Some may have gotten it, but some clearly didn't get it because Paul writes a second letter later on to the same people. And he brings it up again. And this time he brings it up with much, much, much more force than what he does this one. So let's read this one. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-12. through 12. And he says this, Now we command you, brothers, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not for we hear some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work quietly and to earn their own living. It's funny, whenever I read this passage and I see the thing that says, we command you that if you do not work, you shouldn't eat. And I'm always reminded of the, of the fable about the little red hen. Remember the fable about the little red hen, right? So the little red hen's going to go and make the bread and she asks someone to help, you know, get the stuff and to stir it and to bake it and everything else and... No one helps, and no one helps, no one helps, no one helps. The little red hen ends up doing the entire job herself. Then it comes time to eat, and everyone who didn't eat, who didn't help, wanted to come back and eat, right? But the little red hen said no. So I always thought that these people, whoever wrote that story, I don't know if it was Aesop or somebody else, um, but I'm, it just seems like they probably got the idea from this. But the Apostle Paul is clear about this, right? And he's very, very clear in that second chapter. And so... These people who could have been working were not working. And that's the clear point. They were, should have been working. They should have been supporting themselves, they should have been supporting their families, and they were not doing it. Today we still have that problem, right? We have the same problem that they did now because some people are able to work, but they are not working. Sometimes they do it out of laziness. Sometimes it's out of rebellion. Sometimes people don't work because they struggle with fear. They struggle with anxiety. They struggle with, this, with these social situations. And so they think the answer is to not work. 
Sometimes they do it out of this desire just for entertainment, just for escapism. One of the things that we see now in our culture is young people who are not moving on. Young people who are not moving out. They're not getting jobs, but they're staying at home and they're playing video games all day long. And so there's a book that's called Ready Player One. I'm not sure if anybody's read it, Ready Player One. Um, but the premise is this. There's a billionaire who makes this, um, this um, virtual reality game. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a video game, but it's more than that. And so in his will, he puts down that when I die, he makes the game, and whoever wins the game, the first person to win the game, gets his billions of dollars. Gets like, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So the book is, that's the premise of the book, but at the same time, it's a social commentary that kind of goes through on just how enveloping these video games can be and virtual reality can become. And so listen to a quote from the book. I removed all names and everything, so if you haven't read the book, you'll have no idea who these people are. They might just be major characters, might be minor, it doesn't really matter. It's a paragraph from the book. So, he told me how they had met six years ago when they were both enrolled in an Oasis. So Oasis was the was like their, like their video game, is kind of comprehensive, but think internet when he says that. So um, they met six years ago when we were both enrolled in the Oasis support group for young people who had withdrawn from society and chosen to live in total isolation. They locked themselves in a room, they read manga, and they cruised the Oasis all day, relying on their families to bring them food. Millions of young men and women all over the country had locked themselves away from the world they sometimes call these children the missing millions. So there are, th these people write these books and they just make up this idea, but they look around and they see what society is like and they say, what happens if these kids keep doing this? What happens if they keep going? What happens if in their 20s and they still do it? What happens in their 30s and they're still doing it? And so they said, they're, it's like the missing millions. They, they don't experience you know, childhood. In fact, in the book it talks about some people who you know, it's like they never meet any of these people who are their best friends in real life, but it's just through the, the video games. And so what happens is God is saying that some people are not working for whatever these reasons are. And I just laid out some reasons that we can kind of relate to. And God is saying that these people should be working because God has called them to work. God has called them to support their families. God has called them to support themselves. See, work is good. God designed us to work. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God called them to go into the garden, and God called them to work into the garden before the f sin ever entered in the world, before there was any punishment, before there was any fall at all. And so God goes through and he gives punishment, right? And to the woman, he says, your punishment is going to be pain in childbirth. The punishment is not childbirth. The punishment is pain in childbirth. And so with Adam, he says, your punishment is pain and work. Your punishment isn't work. Your punishment is pain and work. Work is good, but this is the, the bad part is the punishment. And so God has called us to work. And God has called us to work our entire lives. If you look at Caleb from the Old Testament, Caleb was, what happened was the Israelites were in Egypt and the slaves. They left, God takes them out, and God's going to give them their own land. It's the land of Canaan. But it's already occupied, but God is going to call them to go in and to take over the land. So they send in 12 spies. Um, Ten were good, two were bad. And one of the good ones was Caleb. And so Caleb, the, all 12 come back. Ten give this report. The land is beautiful. It is wonderful. But I don't think we, but the people are big and they're strong. Ten say we cannot defeat them. 
The other two come back with the same report. The land is unbelievable. It's great. There are people who are like giants who live in the land. But God will give us the land. Caleb was one of those people who did that. They listened to the tent, and they didn't go in and they didn't conquer the land. But Moses, but God, through Moses, promised a piece of land to Caleb. And he says, this will be your land. He swore an oath, this will be your land. They end up in the wandering in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Then another five years when they finally go in and they start to conquer the land, they start to conquer the land, they start to conquer the land. By this time, Caleb is 85 years old. He's 85 years old, and the prospect is to go in and to conquer the land. And listen to what he says. This is um, in the book of Joshua. Caleb says, Behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with their great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord has said. This guy is 85 years old. He's been waiting 45 years to do the work that God has called him to do. He says, I am just as ready at 85 as I was at 40. And God, you see, he has the same message right back then. He said, these people are in there. They have great fortified cities, but God will give us land. 85 years old, he still wants to do the work. He says, look, he says, he says the Lord will be with me. And I shall drive them out of the land, just as the Lord had said. So my folks' house, folks house church, although they probably would call it their, their second house, but at my parents' church, uh, there's a guy named Pastor Carl Ekdahl. And so Pastor Colin had been a uh, missionary in Ecuador for like over 35 years. He came back and he, and he would, became a pastor at the church. And he was a pastor for years and years and years. Last year he retired. He was 90 years old when he retired from being a pastor. This year he's 91 years old. And every Tuesday after the Sunday service, he comes in and he cleans the sanctuary. At 91 years old, he's cleaning the sanctuary. He leads a senior's Bible study. He visits people in the nursing home. He writes letters constantly to encourage people. Every Friday morning at 6 a.m. they have a men's breakfast. He's getting up at 5 o'clock something to get to the men's breakfast at 6 o'clock. Every Thursday they have another group where people meet at one of the local restaurants, and he, he attends every one of those things. Every month, once a month, he and my brother get out for breakfast. Every day he sends my brother a Bible passage and says, hey, what do you think about this? And they have this thing where they just go on and he kind of like disciples him, even though my brother, he's 91, my brother is, I'm going to do the math, let's see, if about 45, right around there. Um, and uh, um, he, there's still this discipleship going on, this, this same relationship, and he's 91 years old. Mickey's dad was a pastor for over 50 years. He passed away when he was 81 years old. And he still preached. He would still go to churches that needed him. So two weeks before he passed away, he was preaching. He's 81 years old, and he would go to the nursing homes and to the shut-ins, and he, as he would call it, I'm going to go visit the old people. <laughs> so he's 81, and he's visiting the old people. Um, he was working on a master's degree when he was 81, and he passed away. Work is good, and God has called us to work, and God has not called us to stop working. God has called us to continue to work because it is good. Now, we know that there are situations where people can't work, right? 
We know that there's injuries. We know that there's disabilities. And these are just to name a couple of them. And if this is you, you need to know that this is legitimate. And if you have a government program that can help you out, it is right to use the government program, right? Scripture is clear. Romans 13 tells us that all government, all government is set up by God. And it says the government and the authorities and the people who work in these things are your servants for good. That's the way to it. They are your servants for good. And this includes the programs that they have. And throughout the Bible, we see that God has called people to um, help the poor, to help the weak, to help the widows. And we see places in Scripture where if they don't do this, they're punished. And if they do this, they are blessed. God has called us um, to do this. Listen to John Stott on this point. He says this. He says, We have no liberty to apply Paul's teaching about work to the un unwaged who are drawing unemployment benefits or living on welfare. What Paul is condemning here is not unemployment when people want to work but cannot find it, but idleness, when work is available but people don't want to do that. You need to be absolutely clear that you understand that point. This is what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who cannot do this. He's talking about people who will not do this. When there is work and they are unable to um, do that. So there is so much work um, to, that we can do, whether you're um, waged or unwaged. God has called us to do so many things. And no matter where you are in your life, God has called you to do things. So we had another guy at uh, my folks' church, and he passed away. He was old. He had polio when he was uh, young. And so he, by the time he got old, he couldn't leave the house at all. Um, to get from like here to like that uh, window right there would probably take him like 10 or 15 minutes of kind of shuffling and groaning to get over there. He was in pain just 24 hours a day. This guy prayed all the time. He made calls all the time. He wrote letters all the time. He did so much good for the church on that spiritual dimension. It was just unbelievable. And there was like several of these people there at my folks' church. And um, they were the older, older ones. And when they passed away, and they were really the prayer words and stuff, I asked my dad, I'm like, did your church feel it when these people, you know, left? And um, it's just, if we have people that are praying for that, right? And if we have people who pray and who write and who encourage and do this, it is such an amazing thing because this is God's work and this is your work as well. So we spent an awful lot of time on that. What we want to do next is we want to transition to what is it like when you are at work? And so this is, I'm going to kind of use the uh, waged employed thing, but try to think about this, whether you're a student, whether you're a homemaker, whatever your situation is, the question is, how do you work? So how do you work when you're at work? That's the question. And what does God call you to do? What God calls you to do is to work hard. When you're at work, you must work hard. Some people have this religious idea that they should be witnessing during their work, and that is doing God's work. But make no mistake, you are not paid to witness when you're at work. You are paid to work when you're at work. That's what you are paid for. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't witness at all because God has called me to do this. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't or even during that, but... When can you witness when you're at work? Or when can you witness to people like that, right? You can witness to them on your lunch break or after work. 
You can invite them to come over to dinner. You can invite them to come over to Alpha, right? Alpha starts this Thursday night, and we're going to go on for, I'm not sure how long Alpha starts, but I know you can, you can jump in. We can witness to people, right? But don't ever think that God has called you to not work hard when you're at work so that you can witness people, right? Because your work ethic, your work ethic is either going to harm your witness or it's going to help your witness. If you say that you're a Christian and everyone knows that you're, that you're a Christian, but you're the slowest person there and everyone else has to pick up the slack to do your job, what is your witness going to look like? What are the people around you going to look like? Because verse 12 tells us clearly, we are to work so that we may live properly before outsiders. Right? People see everything. And they judge us by what they see. And they judge us by how it affects them. Right? So if, if you're at work and every time you come, your boss comes around the corner and you're talking or you're distracting somebody else from doing their work, it's not going to go well from your work standpoint, right? Because what's your annual review going to look like? What is your raise going to look like? When it comes time for that promotion, are you the one who's going to get the promotion? Or is it going to be, assuming that you're the lazy sloppy one I'm saying, or is it going to be the person who's a hard-working non-Christian, right? And if that hard-working non-Christian gets it, and the sloppy, non-hard, lazy Christian doesn't get it, is that religious discrimination? Or is that just good common sense by the boss, right? Because I'll tell you this, right? If I'm the boss, and I've got two people, one person's a Christian, but they're lazy and they're always talking and they're not doing the job, and the other one's hard-working, always doing their job, picking up the pace, this guy's not doing it, this guy's picking it up, who am I going to hire? I'm going to hire the hard-working, non-Christian every day of the week because that's what they're there for work. And God says, we walk this way before outsiders because they are looking at us and they are judging us and we want to be that strong witness. So when you're at work, you need to work as hard as you can. And another reason why we work that hard is because we work onto God. Listen to Colossians 3, 22 and 24. It says, bond servants, meaning workers, right? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God cares about how you work. God cares about what the world thinks about you when you're at work. He takes it very seriously because we have the ability to make people look down at Christians, to look down at God, to judge them. And we also have the ability to shine brightly for God. And if we have our co-workers who are watching us day to day and we are the hardest working there and we're looking out for them and we're picking it out for them and we're always concerned about them when it comes time to witness to them they will know they will know who you are and what it means to be a christian so god also gives us one other point in this and that is that we live or we work hard i'm sorry so that we will not be dependent on anyone we will not be dependent on anyone so is he telling us that we need to be independently wealthy to have so much work or to have so much money that we never need to work? No, he's telling us that we work 
so we can take care of ourselves, so that we can take care of our families. He's saying this is your responsibility. 1 Timothy 5, in talking about widows, says that if the unbelieving widow has a family, they should, they should care for her. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. See, there's a limited amount of money that every church will have. And we want to make sure, God wants to make sure, that this money goes to those who truly need it. And not ones who don't truly need it. And so, at the beginning of this passage, Paul tells us that we are love one another more and more and more. And there's many different ways that we love each other. With our finances is one of the ways that we love each other. We work hard so that we can give to others. That's one of the things. In the book of Ephesians talks about how, in one section, talks about how Christians are to live, right? We live this way when we weren't Christians. We're to live this way now that we're Christians. And one of the things that he talks about is how do we live if you were a thief before? So let's look at this. Verse 28, Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Usually if we think about a thief and we want him to do the opposite, we think, just don't steal anymore, right? Get a job. Stop stealing. Get a job. But Scripture says no. Because it's not that he's not you know, working and we want him to work. What he's saying is, what does a thief do? A thief takes from other people. What is the opposite of taking from other people? The opposite of taking from other people is giving to other people. So how does the thief go from taking to giving? The thief stops taking and he works and he gets money and then he's able to give to other people. And so it's one of the ways that we love each other. It's one of the ways that we show this brotherly love is to work so that we have the ability to give to others. We have the ability to give to others too at King of Grace Church here, we have a, uh, what's called a benevolence fund, which is a fund that we use just to give to other people. Um, if you want to give to that, on, on your check, you can just put like in the memo line for benevolence fund, or if you give online, that's another option is to give online. Um, there's a little thing in there, I don't know if it says benevolence fund or helping other people or giving to other people, I don't remember exactly what it is, but there's a way um, to do that. And it's one of the ways that we show our love. And so, when it comes to work, we're going to ask the same questions that we asked about love and about living this quietly. Is this easy or difficult? For some of you, it might be easy, right? You have a natural, hard-working ethic. Or you grew up in a house where it was really you know, brought out that you work hard, that you do that, that you pull your own weight. For others, you didn't have that background, right? You may, it may have never been walked out in front of you. It may have never been emphasized. Emph I say that word. Thank you. <laughs> That's the word. Empathize, I think, is when you care for people. Emphasize is when you really push this point. So that's what it is. So maybe you didn't have that. Maybe there's no one pushing this point. No, maybe there's nobody walking you through and showing you exactly what this looks like, right? Um, or maybe, you know, it's just been years and just the habit, the way you work or the way you don't work or the way you, who you are. So now you've got years and years to go back and to kind of reevaluate because you slid into these habits and the way it is. So what do you struggle with in these things? And even when it comes to work for the people who are natural, there is, you know, it's like we're looking right now who people who are doing a bad job and who aren't working or whatever, because this is what the passage says. We do know that there are people who are workaholics and sacrifice families and friends and everything for work. So perhaps that's your struggle. But what is your struggle and where is it in this? And where do you need the Holy Spirit the most in this? 
And where do you need the prayers of other people? And once again, I just encourage you, we've looked at brotherly love, we've looked at living a quiet life, we've looked at work, which is what the Apostle Paul has come, is, is coming to say like that. So where do you need to reach up? So just to wrap up, when we work hard, when we live quiet lives, when we love those around us, we are like God. We are like Jesus because we are made in his image. And these are the things that God does. These are the things that Jesus does. And we do it because we have been taught by God. And we see clearly the Trinity in the different ways, how they worked in the past and how they continue to work. Right? So we see God the Father and we see him working in creation. And it is clear. You read the first few chapters of Genesis. God is working, working, working. And it is good. And it is very good. And then we see that God the Father still continues to work. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his way, and he is kind in all of his works. He continues to work. Jesus Christ worked when he was here, right? He was a carpenter. We know that he worked with his hands. He said his food was to do the work that his Father gave him. And in his high priestly prayer in the book of John, he says, I glorified you on work, having, I'm, I'm sorry, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. What was his biggest work? His biggest work was saving us from our sins, right? We, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ working and doing the work that God the Father has given him today, we would have no hope. We would die in our sins. But because Jesus Christ did the work that the Father gave him to do, we now have salvation as we confess our sins and we put our faith into him. And Jesus Christ still works today. We can see that he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. That's the work that he's doing now. Have you ever thought about that? Here's God the Father. And his right hand, here's Jesus Christ. And he's looking at you. And he's interceding with the Father right there. And this is the work that he is doing right now. It is absolutely amazing if you think about that. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, doing the work. And he's the one most associated with the actual, um, you know, doing God's work in the world. The Holy Spirit is always. So we glorify God when we work hard. And like Jesus, we can say, I have glorified you on work, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We also glorify God when we live these peaceful, quiet lives. For Jesus Christ was meek and gentle. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we glorify God when we love each other. For God is love. By this we know love that he laid his life down for us and we ought to lay our lives down for each other. So beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So I urge you brothers to love one another more and more. To live quietly. To mind your own affairs. To work hard so that you may walk properly before outsiders and that you may be dependent on no one. The band can come up as we close in prayer. Father God.